welcome to Thriving Educators. I am Brian Langley. In today's episode, I speak with media specialist Bethany Bratney about Daniel T. Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School? Which is quite honestly one of my favorite books on education and a conversation I've been looking forward to having with Bethany since this podcast started a few years back. Enjoy. Bethany Bratney, welcome back to the Thriving Educators podcast. Thank you so much. I am excited to be back. I am excited too because we are going to be discussing um, one of my favorite education books, Daniel Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School? Yes. And I'm going to be uh, quoting from the second edition and you read the first edition, which is actually the first edition I read as well. I've read it many times. We've already shared notes. They're pretty much the same book. There's some tweaks in the second edition, but it's not gonna make a difference for our listeners. Yes. Also, I think it's worth being transparent here and let our listeners know that this is the third time we are trying to record this episode. That yes. The first episode, we didn't give ourselves enough time. The second episode, which sounded beautifully, we I actually didn't record it. And so here we go. Trial number three, are you ready? Yes, perseverance is part of education, Brian. That's right, we are <laughs> persevering here. Okay, so um, Bethany, we have done book, this is now our third book chat, I think, yes. that we've done as podcasts. Correct. And the way we do it is we each bring our three things about the book. Mm -hmm. And normally I am super rude and go first, but today I am not, I am letting you go first. So Bethany, what was your first thing from Daniel Willingham's book. My first thing is one of his main, like he has a, a main chapter heading in every chapter, right. at the start of every chapter. And it's the main chapter heading, and I don't know if that's cheating, but it hit me really hard mm -hmm. when I read it. And that is, memory is the residue of thought. Uh, you have actually said this to me before because you love this book. Mm -hmm. um, but reading it and then processing through some of the examples that he gave, it just really struck me. He says in my edition, it's on page 33. He says, if you think about something carefully, you'll probably have to think about it again. So it should be stored. That means your memory is a product of what you think about. Mm -hmm. And boy, that that seems obvious, I think, when you read it and when you think about it for a second, but it really forced me to think about what I'm asking my students to think about when I'm teaching lessons and uh, to reevaluate some things. I have, we started talking about this book over the summer. <clears throat> and so as this new school year started, I started approaching my lessons by thinking myself mm -hmm. what am i asking the students to think about am i giving them time to think um and is what i'm asking them to think about what i really want them to learn right and you know i'm i wasn't way off track but there were times where i realized you know i'm teaching a research lesson 
And what I'm really asking them to think about is my example, okay, not the strategy or the tool that I want them to take away from this. Mm-hmm. And so I have shifted how I approach these things a little bit and started really talking to them about, you know, how would you approach this? What what can you think about as you're trying this out to put them in the mindset of hopefully remembering how to think about something as their beginning. You know, I want them to think about thinking, <laughs> which is a little yeah, tricky. Nice. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's really, I think it's going to be very impactful for my teaching and hopefully for our students. So when you go to make your lessons for mm-hmm. your students, the thing that you're going to keep in mind now because of this quote is that what they will be learning is what they are thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so what you want them to learn is what you want them to try and think about. Yes. And so this quote right here, memory is the residue of thought, I think there's two important things to, to note. One, there is a, um, there's this idea in education that like memorizing something is bad. Mm-hmm. And while it might not be the greatest goal we want for our students, when we learn, like the physiological um, act of learning something is moving it into your memory, right. moving it into long-term memory so that you have it in the future. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be embracing this memory mm-hmm. and we want things to be moved into long-term memory. And so the things that we want students to learn, we want them to then think about, because according to this, memory is the residue of thought. Right. And so the second thing is that, you know, we talk about, we use phrases sometimes in education, like um, learning by doing. Mm -hmm. Or I heard at a professional development a couple months ago, like the person that's talking is doing the learning. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know that those are necessarily all that accurate. I do feel like this line is accurate, Mm -hmm. that memory is the residue of thought. And so if you're doing is the thinking, if the students, if that's what they're doing, then yes, I believe that they will be learning. Um, But just sometimes you can, the students can look active, but they might not be learning. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with talking, like just because a student is talking, I don't know that that necessarily means that they are learning. It could be, it could be an illusion, and so um, as teachers, I think your first point is the perfect one to start us off, because we want to be building activities then where students are thinking about the things we want them to learn about, because that will help move that into long-term memory. Yeah. Okay, so I actually brought a a, a certain number one thing. But because of your number one thing, I'm now moving it down to number two and I'm going to switch up my number two to my number one, which nobody cares about because nobody knows what in my list looks like, but here it is. <laughs> All right, my number two is that understanding is disguised remembering. And it's on, on my edition, page 96. And the reason why I wanna bring this up is because it goes back to my first point I just made about your quote and that is that um, memorizing something, moving something into your memory is, go- is a good thing. It's actually part of the learning process. And we understand things better 
and deeper when we have more connections in our memory. So the things that we are learning about, if we can connect them to more things that we've already learned about, then we will have a deeper understanding of how it works. And so uh, Willingham distinguishes between rote knowledge versus shallow knowledge versus deep knowledge. And rote knowledge is the thing that like everybody is worried, worried about. And um, we, we definitely don't want rote knowledge. And rote knowledge is knowledge that is like devoid of any kind of connection. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I learned about from this book is that that's actually really rare. It's like our brains don't wanna do that. Mm-hmm. And that's not how our brains learn. Our brains learn by taking new, new bits of information and connecting it to old bits. And so we, we have a propensity to want to learn things deeper. Mm-hmm. And so shallow learning is a little bit better than rote. It starts to have some connections. And then the more connections that that, that learning or knowledge, or whatever, whatever word you wanna use, has, um, the deeper it becomes. And so I, I really like that line, understanding is disguised remembering. And that key, the key there is that connections matter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I worry that from a specific lesson, the students haven't gotten deep enough. But Willingham makes the point that shallow knowledge is better than no knowledge. Right, that's right. And you can build upon it. That's and right. And so knowing that I may see them again, we're gonna cover it again, that means they have something to connect to. Mm-hmm. And it's not rote. Yeah, right, and so the, and even the shallow knowledge, like you can't, you can't get to deep knowledge without shallow first. Right. So you have to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so Bethany then, what is your number two? Okay, so my number two uh, is the only path to expertise is practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Willingham says practice lets us see deep structure, organize knowledge differently, and automate processes that once required effort or thought. Um, And so I I was thinking about this in a couple of ways, um, but the thing that really hit me about this was a personal example, and I don't know if that's what this podcast is for, but it is a personal educational example. I one of the questions that other teachers ask me the most um, is how I remember so many things about so many books. Right. I spend a lot of how time. How do you do that? Yes. Uh, I spend a lot of time sharing books out loud with students and staff um, who are in the room, and um, I don't like to repeat myself because you end up talking about the same books six times a day, then they're all gone by the time you have a second class. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have teachers frequently ask me, like, how can you do this all day long and talk about 36 different books or whatever? Um, And it really occurred to me as I was reading this section that that this is how I can do it. Like, I I have been doing this for a long time. I practice this all the time. All the time. I talk about the same books, if they're good books, if kids like them, I, I put them in talk after talk after talk because I know that they're going to be appreciated. Mm-hmm. And it has reached a point for me with some books that it almost feels automated. I don't have to think about what I'm going to say about that book because I already know what I'm gonna say about that book. And that is a very specific to me example. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But recognizing that process in my own practice and the way that I developed that expertise through practice, Mm -hmm. um, it really helps me to draw a parallel then to how students practicing things, practicing skills or thinking or strategies can can work them in that direction. But also, they can't immediately be experts. They can't. This is, in my example, years, mm-hmm. over a decade, <laughs> of practicing to get to the point that I'm at. So it's nobody's going to be an expert overnight. Right. So again, I think about two things in this one. So the point of practice and the point of expertise. So, you know, there's a, there's a model for, uh, for learning something that goes that, you know, the first time you see something or, or, or you think about cramming for a test. Mm-hmm. So when you cram for a test, you might, um, you might have everything, it might be in your memory, you might be able to know it for like a day or two or something like that, and then it quickly fades. Mm-hmm. But then if you come back to it and you practice it again or you remember it again or you, you they call it a retrieval practice to pull it out of your memory, well, that act makes it stronger for the next time you want it. Well, imagine how many times you've done that now over your career. Mm-hmm. You, you've talked about a book, you know, uh, you, you talk about it again, maybe to another class, then you don't talk about it for a few weeks. You talk about it again. Now it's stronger for the next time. Now you do that over years and then on top of that, not only is that book stronger, but then that book connects to other books that you're doing that same thing with. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds to me like how you build expertise. So I mentioned that Willingham talks about organizing knowledge differently and, and that is definitely happening the way that you just described. Mm-hmm. Like I now, knowing what I've learned and how I do things, I am thinking about books differently even as I read them, like how I could share, how I could present. I'm filtering that knowledge into categories that I didn't use to categorize and things like that because I have practiced this so much and I know what's effective and what's not effective and things like that. So absolutely. Right. And I teach science. So in science, there's this idea that we want students to think like scientists. Mm-hmm. And I and I get it, but we also don't want to like um, uh, make it too superficial mm-hmm. what it means to be an expert scientist. Like an expert scientist, they don't just know the, the scientific method or something. Mm-hmm. They also have an incredible depth of knowledge of the science field and that they draw on to make their conclusions and to know what direction to go and, and, and where what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And so while I don't disagree that we should be offering our students opportunities to think like scientists. Um, we also don't want to cheapen what it means to actually have the expertise of a scientist. And we also don't want to write off the importance of the, the knowledge base that goes into being an expert mm-hmm. in that particular field. Yeah. Um, but I also want to point out one study of algebra on page 130. Okay. And so on page 130 in my book, and I'm not going to quote anything from it, but he talks about a study that followed um, followed people over years of taking mathematics classes. Mm-hmm. And it basically was looking at, it tested these people over years and years and years to see how well they were retaining their, I think it was algebra or something like that. And the, the study found 
that it didn't really matter like what grade you got in in high school or, or your, your grades at all for that matter. Like whether or not you were really good at it or not, um, at least by the grades. What mattered was how often you practiced it. And so if you were somebody that ended up taking lots of math classes, there was a point where you had practiced it so many times over so many years that people actually stopped forgetting their algebra and they had effectively learned it for the rest of their life. And this is just, to me, it seems like a powerful um, research in the, in the point you just brought up, the importance of practice and how that done, especially over time, can lead to something where you eventually reach a point where you don't ever forget it. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Okay, thank you, Bethany. <laughs> I'm gonna go with my two. Okay. Are you ready? Your two, that's now your Which, one. Right, right, <laughs> okay. So my number one or two, whichever way you wanna call it, is that thinking, uh, thinking skills depend on factual knowledge. So thinking skills depend on factual knowledge. Um, this might be maybe the most important idea I wish everyone understood, but especially educators. So in education, we tend to talk about critical thinking and problem solving as like the main things we're trying to to get our students to do. Mm-hmm. And that's like our biggest goal. Mm-hmm. But what we don't always seem to appreciate is that those kind like problem solving, being a good problem solver and being a good critical thinker, that depends on the knowledge and skills that you've developed in those particular areas that you're trying to solve and those things you're trying to think critically about. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that if we want our students to be better problem solvers, if we want our students to be better critical thinkers, that actually depends on the knowledge that they have. And there's a, there's a quote here in the book that I will read from. It's on page 28 of my second edition. And it's in reference to this idea that Knowledge isn't that important anymore because you can just look things up on Google. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Willingham says is, data from the last 40 years led to a conclusion that is not scientifically challengeable. Thinking well requires knowing facts. And that's true not simply because you need something to think about. The very processes that teachers care about most, critical thinking processes such as reasoning and problem solving are intimately intertwined with factual knowledge that is stored in long-term memory. Mm -hmm. If we want our students to be better problem solvers and critical thinkers, then the, the knowledge is going to be important too and we need to be helping them broaden their knowledge. Yeah, and I hear this from teachers that I'm working with all the time that their students are struggling to connect to the content of their class, uh, whether it's history or the novels or stories that they're reading in English class, things like that. The, the kids are not getting it because 
they don't have anything to connect it to. The situations that they're being that are being posed in these books or in their historical um, context, they they don't have they can't make connections because they don't have the background knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be something there to connect to, or it is just kind. It's a little bit like that rote mm-hmm. knowledge, right? It's just arbitrary, or at least it feels that way mm-hmm. to a brain and a teenager. And I feel like um, sometimes teachers or um, the public in general, maybe uh, who knows. Um, we don't appreciate our own knowledge base. Yeah. And right, because we we understand things and we are solving problems and we are thinking creatively and we don't realize, we don't recognize the importance of what we know, our background knowledge on those skills. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. So that's my second thing, Bethany. What is your third thing? So my third thing is about the power of stories. Mm -hmm. Very on brand for a librarian, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Willingham says that power of stories help connect to background knowledge, um, help make emotional connections and deal with retention. On page 58 in my book, he says, things that create an emotional reaction will be better remembered, Mm -hmm. though emotion is not necessary for learning. and I feel like this is where a lot of my worlds meld, right? Okay. I, again, I am a story person. Um, but like I remember very specifically in high school that I was not into history until I had a teacher who made us read historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And putting myself in the shoes of, of a person who had a perceived identity and a character and okay. a context finally helped history open up for me. Um, And I think that is how it works for a lot of students, but it doesn't have to be a book. Um, The part about this that I love the most, I think, is Willingham has a quote on page 66 of my book. He says, the human mind seems exquisitely tuned to understand and remember stories. So much so that psychologists sometimes refer to stories as psychologically privileged meaning that they're treated differently in memory than other types of materials. That's interesting. It's fascinating to me. Um, And so the background on that is, earlier in the book, Willingham discusses how in order to learn, things need to be in kind of this sweet spot for the brain. Right, Goldilocks. Yeah, the Goldilocks area. It can't be too easy or the brain is sort of like, eh, bored. Mm -hmm. And it can't be too hard because if the brain is struggling too much, it can't process. Mm -hmm. It has to be kind of right in the middle, hard enough to pose a challenge because we have an innate desire to embrace a challenge, but not too challenging so that we want to give up. Um, And so he says stories demand this medium difficulty inference, and that's why they're psychologically privileged. So the idea to me that putting something in the context of a story automatically makes your brain readier to learn it, Mm -hmm. that's wild and really cool and personally very fulfilling 
because <laughs> I often deal in the business of stories. Right. Um, and, you know, I often, I think, think about what students are going to get out of the stories that that I help them find. Um, and a lot of times for me, it's more personal or emotional, right? Like I read a book last year called The, the Gift of Story, and it's by John Shu. It's great. Um, but he talks about how books can be a healer, can help with compassion, can be a connector, can be inspirational. And I love all of that, and I want all of that. But I also love that students, by reading other people's stories, can be learning more, more facts about the world, more knowledge about people, more about it, different environments, and that it seems to me poses a really exciting opportunity for teachers to share things that we want students to learn, lessons, in a story-like format to help them engage mm -hmm. and retain. Right, so yeah, I'm so glad you brought up this point too. Um, because I had read an earlier earlier editions of this and and came across that myself about the importance of storytelling. That was why I invited Dr. Matthews. I don't know if that was season one or season. It must have been I season think one. Season one, yeah. yeah. To talk about um, how he develops the stories that he would tell at opening day because mm -hmm. these are these elaborate, very engaging stories. Um, so that maybe we can learn some of those tips. And if you're a listener and you want to go back and check that one out, if you haven't before, it's it's there. Um, yeah, the power of stories, and it um, your brain might actually put those ahead of other ones and pay more attention to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, my third thing. Yes. Okay, my third thing is that room in working memory matters. So I just want to, in, in a model of how learning works, or maybe how memory works. We have um, we have this we have attention things that we're paying attention to, and then there's this um, working memory or sometimes people call it um, short term memory, mm -hmm. and uh, and then there's long term memory, and so the idea is that the things that we're thinking about that takes place in the working memory, and then the things and that might be it might be short we can't hold a ton of of things in the working memory, and then if it if it's gonna last, it gets moved to long-term memory. Okay, so on page 17, Willingham says this, for problems to be solved, the thinker needs adequate information from the environment, room in working memory, and the required facts and procedures in long-term memory. And so there's this combination of these three things and they're each really important. Um, the key to this to me there's a couple keys. One is if working memory is so important and it's limited, then as teachers, we need to make sure that we're reducing the load on students so that they can be thinking about what we want them to think about, to go back to one of your earlier points. Mm -hmm. um, if we have too much extraneous things going on or if, if like a problem on an assessment is just too complicated, then it could overload their working memory and now the next thing you know, their students aren't finding success and we've kind of set that up for, you know, for them. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I want to point out is that this is another reason why long-term memory is important. Because if you have something stored in long-term memory, then your brain doesn't have to be working on it. It can use it. It can use the connections from it. And so that frees up 
supposedly space in your working memory to be able to now think about something new, like maybe the problem you're working on. Mm -hmm. And so I think this one is really important. Um, there's a, as sometimes it's referred to as cognitive load theory, but there's this idea that working memory is limited, it's precious, and we want to put students in situations where they can use their working memory for the things we want them to be thinking about. Yeah, I think that's so critical in the times that we live in too, because, well, and as educators, right, we are dealing with kids who are coming to us from their, their wildly different lives, and they have this constant bombardment of stuff. And so like their working memory could be half full or totally full mm. <laughs> by the time they get to us. Um, and I think how we structure things can make a big difference on how their working memory is operating. You mm. know, if we're scattered and have a bunch of things going on, we are essentially shoveling that into their working memory as well. And uh, that could probably be a real hindrance. Yeah. Okay, so there you go. Six things from the book. Now, I want to come up. I want to come back to the title of the book <laughs> because Bethany, I think maybe the worst thing about this book. I I adore this book, but I I think if there's one thing I have a problem with, it's actually the title. Yes. Um, nowhere in the book, I don't think, does it discuss why students don't like school. Which the title literally says, "Why don't students like school?" <laughs> it never addresses this. Right. And so I'm curious why you think the book got its name besides obviously trying to make it sellable. Yeah, I think 100% this book got its name to make it sellable. Yeah. Um, but I think there's an implication that I don't think he makes very explicit. Um, I think what Willingham wanted to say here, or maybe what the book should have been called, is learning is hard. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a complicated brain process and it has to be in that sweet spot of not too easy and not too challenging. And a lot of times we are not doing it or we're not setting students up to learn. And when well. you say we, you mean the Educ educators, educators yes. Um, so I think I think he should have called it why is learning hard? And how can educators make it easier? Um, yeah. Because it's not really about engagement with school. It's about why students sometimes are struggling to learn things yeah. in school. Yeah. And I love the, I love the title you've come up with. Thank you. I will accept that as the alternate <laughs> title. Um, and so if, if you out there, the listener, find this interesting, a book that asks the question, why is learning hard? and then how educators can make it easier. Then I, you might wanna check out the Daniel Willingham's book, uh, Why Don't Students Like School? <laughs> All right, Bethany Bradney, thank you for coming back on to, and then not only that, but trying three times to um, get our conversation um, finished. You know I will always come back. Yeah. I love being on the podcast. Thank yeah. you. All right, thanks, Bethany. Okay, that wraps up another episode of Thriving Educators. I want to thank Bethany Brattany for sharing with me her three things on the book, Why Don't Students Like School? I hope you found something meaningful in that conversation. Take care, everyone. <laughs>